What's that painting in the background? Ah, this is um, it's it's a piece actually that my sister did years ago um, for her degree show, and it's oh. actually it's a, it's going to reverse the negative um, that 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 she ended up painting it. So it kind of runs along. Oh, cool. So she didn't. I kind of liked it, and she didn't really need it after her degree show. So <laughs> I said, fine. So I, I've got many things to ask you. I hope that's okay. You don't mind? Yeah, that's fine. So the the first thing I, w- I want to ask you about is because I think it's a, it's a quite a contentious issue at the moment, and I would probably be remiss if I didn't ask you about it, especially where I live in Sligo, and I know you you deal with education and stuff like that. And the stu- there's a lot of students in Sligo now that obviously have have nowhere to stay with regards to uh, asylum seekers that have been put into the place where they where they were going, and. It's not a it's not an issue that's immune to to just Sligo. I mean, I live in Innisgrown, which is a tiny little village, and we've got we've got ma- ma- not massive, but we've got large numbers of asylum seekers and and Ukrainian refugees, and it's kind of every little place in um in Ireland, every every little village, and there's not much work to do for people. So, where is the government going with this? In in aspect of like, if there's not much work for these people to do, how can we keep taking people in? So. What is the end game, shall we say? Okay, so so there's probably quite a few issues um, that are there, and I'll I'll, I'll try and look at, at at dealing with them uh, in 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 some sort of um, in some sort of sequence. Yeah. The first issue is the the, the big challenge around housing and uh, more generally mm-hmm. uh, and accommodation. So we've had up until the last few years ago, we had a decade of undersupply. We weren't building. Uh, a sufficient number of houses, even though the population was continuing to grow. I think one of the big changes in Ireland is, as a state, we hit the population of 4 million um, during the mid-1990s. In the census last year, we hit 5.2 million. So Mm -hmm. that's quite a phenomenal level of growth for a Western liberal democracy, about 30% growth in a generation. That's that's a good thing in many ways. in, in that the population of the state is continuing to grow, but that obviously means that there's a lot of pressure on services, and, and that in particular includes uh, mm-hmm. housing. Um, we are starting to pick up the pace uh, now on home building. We are seeing kind of, you know, levels of home building and levels of fresh starts that we haven't seen uh, since the uh, the Celtic Tiger years. So. The numbers are back, but we are catching up on a, a decade of undersupply. We, we need more accommodation, full stop, right across the board. Specifically, the challenge then um, in uh, uh, the kind of student accommodation area, um, a lot of that is going to be solved, I believe, by you know the construction of far more on-campus student accommodation. Right. Um, and what government has now done is it's entered into partnership with a lot of the higher education institutions, whereby, because the, the costs, in many cases, these are, are building apartments, because the, the cost of these, that it's very difficult for the universities and other institutions uh, to kind of to come together and, and, and make it worthwhile. The state has now offered to step in uh, and will take an equity stake in the building of this accommodation. But part of the deal is that the accommodation during the academic year would be rented to students 
uh, at a reasonable rental level. The first of these projects was done with Dublin City University, but it's open to institutions right around the country, and a number of them are, are, are taking it up um, on that. Um, we do have, I mean, one of the other pieces of good news is I suppose that anyone who is a third level student, I mean, if you're doing your leaving certificate this year, you have more opportunities than any generation um, previously in terms of higher education and further education and training places. Uh, Ireland has one of the highest participation rates um, in terms of those going on to college and into training. Um, so that's all good, but that then brings um, pressures obviously on, on the student accommodation side. On the question then of, and this will come in, so um, those who are seeking refuge are seeking asylum here. Uh, so over 80,000 uh, people have fled Ukraine uh, as a result of um, Putin's unlawful invasion and have sought refuge in the state here. Um, the situation for um, all of those is that, um, you know, many of them, you know, are, are temporarily housed and some of them have gone on to get their own housing. Their position is that they, they're going to be treated in the exact same way as uh, European Union citizens. So they have an automatic right to work. And indeed, many of the Ukrainians have taken up that right to work and are already working and contributing in our communities. Um, the likelihood is if and when um, the war in Ukraine ends, a significant number of those from Ukraine uh, will go back home. Now, some of them may not because they've nothing uh, to, uh, to go back to. We then would also have about 20,000 um, asylum seekers who have come here seeking asylum on the basis that they are fleeing uh, war, famine, um, political oppression, human rights oppression. Uh, in, in most of those cases, they can look to work after a period of three months or six months uh, here. So they are in a position to work and a lot of them do take up employment. On, on the employment situation, we have an unemployment rate of about 3.5%. Um, you know, the, the, the economy is going at full tilt. Uh, to be blunt, in Ireland, if you want a job, there is a job out there for you. Um, uh, and, and part of it is we, we've got upskill and reskill. Where some of the challenges, and you're right, is that for some communities where you have you know, hotels or bed and breakfasts that may be taken over in order to house refugees and asylum seekers. Um, this can cause a problem um, for the hotel owner, the, the business owner. In one sense, it's not an issue for them because they're guaranteed, you know, certainty of income and particularly certain of certainty of income right throughout uh, the year rather than just the summer trade. But it does mean that a lot of these premises, not just that you know, they're not able to provide accommodation in rural communities. Um, but it does mean as well that, you know, they're often centres for community activities, for weddings, for family occasions, mm. uh, for, for local meetings. And you don't have that, that community centre that's available. And, and that is a problem. Um, the government's goal is to get rid of the kind of the direct provision model. Um, but while we continue to have the accommodation crisis, I, I, I got to be blunt that that's going to be difficult. Yeah, but do you not think the government is facilitating this by the amount of money that's been offered to landlords? Because in particular where I live, there's like people are redoing up places and they'll put four men or three men in a room and you get 800 euro a head. It's, it's, it looks like it's about money. 
in that aspect because like where I live, tourism has gone down massively. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's affecting every little part of Ireland. And I think at the same time, you cannot just move a load of people into a rural place overnight with no, you, you don't talk to the community and they're supposed to just go, oh, it's fine. And some people say it's about race and it's about color, but it's not about that. If you move 200 men into an area overnight, people would have an issue with it. If they're from Ireland or they're from Chile, it's not that. I think there's there's no consultation with anyone in rural areas. It kind of seems like rural Ireland always kind of gets kind of, ah, well, they're grand. We're kind of always sidelined. And, and I, I don't know, do the government realize how big of an issue it is in rural Ireland? Well, I, I, I think it's fair to say, so I, I sit on the Oireachtas Tourism Committee mm-hmm. and we've examined this in, in quite a degree of, uh, of, of detail because of the concern that if you take hotel bed nights, um, you know, out of circulation, yeah. it, it does have, as you say, an impact on rural tourism. N- not, in, in fact, in many ways, it's not as much on the hotel or the accommodation. It's actually on, on downstream uh, facilities. So, you know, if you have a local arts or music festival going on, or if you have people who, who operate a kayaking business or, mm-hmm. you know, bike hire and so on, uh, and you're, you're not having tourists coming to the community. So this is a big concern. Um, I, I think overwhelmingly, and I, I, I agree with you, I mean, um, communities are naturally concerned when they see a facility being taken out of, uh, out of use. Um, and it's, it's something that there has to be a right balance struck. And I, I, I totally accept, I don't think, I think, you know, I don't think that, that it's, it's an issue, uh, anything to do with racism. Um, it's a fear about losing a community facility. I think if you look at how communities all around the country have been very welcoming, I mean, Irish people know our history. Uh, I think the overwhelming majority of Irish people are, are appalled um, by the Russian invasion of Ukraine and they see what's happened there. They've been very welcoming. So I don't think it's, it's I, I, I accept your view. Uh, yes, there are racists and there, you know, there are people on the extreme right who go down into rural communities who try to stir it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, for their own purposes, but I I, I totally get um, the concerns that local communities have when they lose um, particular facilities. Um, our hope is obviously that you know the war in Ukraine will end as quickly as possible. Um, but I, I think as a country we should be proud of the you know what we have done um, from a humanitarian perspective to be able to respond to. Uh, you know what? What is an absolutely horrible situation where twelve million people have had to have had to flee their homes? And yes, it, it is causing some discomfort. I, I totally accept that. Um, but I think you know Ireland welcoming people who are fleeing war and oppression. Uh, it is the right thing to do. Um, I, I think our bigger issue is around you know support for rural communities that lack facilities. And you will be aware. I mean, there are these various funds that have been set mm-hmm. up. Yeah, um, for rural communities to access to to provide some of those facilities, those communities that are welcoming refugees and asylum seekers, um, and and look that that's going to have to continue. Um, I I think for all our sakes, though, that we we just got to hope this war ends quickly. Yeah, but like for example, with asylum, do you think we need more of a system like Denmark has? Because we've we Denmark, us, and Portugal signed up to the Lisbon Treaty, so obviously Denmark can obviously, you know, control it more, and we we obviously can if we want. 
So I don't know why there's a certain thing that we kind of say we can't control. I know we signed that deal in 2015. You would know more than I would. Yeah. Does the Lisbon Treaty well, negate uh, that deal? I mean, what I know, what I, what I would argue is we, we don't have, uh, you know, this idea that we have uncontrolled immigration in Ireland is nonsense. Um, you know, if you arrive here, you present for asylum, you have to seek asylum. One of the difficulties, and I think this is actually the problem, is that people's cases are not processed mm -hmm. sufficiently quickly. Um, so a decision should be made. Uh, yes, you are fleeing war or oppression or abuse of your human rights. Um, a decision is made. Yes, you are going to be granted asylum to stay here in Ireland. Or no, we don't believe that you fulfill the, uh, the criteria. Uh, and therefore, you should be returned to the country from which you came. Um, and the problem at the moment is that that you know some of those who are seeking asylum, they're, they're just waiting too long for that. Um, what I will say, though, is in the majority of cases, um, it is a case of people um, who are fleeing, uh, you know, potential oppression because of their their political views, because of their identity, um, because you know that they're, they're stuck in a situation. Of war, I, you know, I, I always sort of think before you judge anybody, put yourself into their shoes. Do you really think some people um, want to try to escape where you know where they live, where their family are from, and everything else um, without some good reason? Uh, I mean, what would prompt you uh, to get up and leave Ireland uh, to go and to seek refuge in another country? Um, and you know, when you think about the extremes, I mean, some of these people uh, are, are fleeing. We need we need to have some thought for that as well. Mm. But there is a, there is a, you could say with regards to if people get you know are given deportation orders, they're they're supposed to like manually deportate themselves. And most deport yeah, but most deportations don't get carried out. It was five thousand, mm. and I think seven percent were carried out. I mean that that no, gives no. A lot that gives no faith in people of the Irish public if you seven percent no. carried out. You know, the majority of deportations are carried out. I mean, in, in many cases, it's either a case of that somebody has refused asylum. Uh, and if if you are in the country unlawfully, uh, you will be forced to leave the country. In many ways, it's it's no different to Irish people who are illegally in the United States. If they're caught, um, they will be sent home. And um, similarly, you know, if you are unlawfully in Ireland. Um, you will be sent home. But the statistics said that seven percent are only are only carried out. So, uh, well, well, uh, but I mean, a lot of people kind of leave of their own volition. I mean, about seven percent of those are where they're they're sort of forcibly carried out, if you like. But but can we prove know, that they leave? Is there any proof that you can prove that people leave? Uh, well, the 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 evidence uh, is that you know people would be caught. Um, so it's you know. Uh, yes, there are cases of where people stay here and continue to work illegally in some instances. Mm -hmm. But like every so often, if you read, you will see reports of, uh, you know, people being caught when they're, they're working unlawfully. Um, you know, there, there are very clear rules in Ireland that if you are a non-European Union citizen uh, as to why you can stay here and why, you know, why you can work here, you have to have a visa and so on. A lot of the time, I mean, one of the, the biggest challenges that, that I'm often facing now is about employers who um, are looking for, and this is not the case of uh, asylum seekers, um, but employers who are trying to get visas to get non-European Union, non-European economic area citizens uh, to be able to work here because we have so many jobs that we just can't fill. 
Yeah. And maybe not so rural Ireland, though. In rural Ireland, it's like where I live, there's not much, you know, it, it's not like there's a magical fairy giving people jobs, especially when we move so many people into rural areas. I mean, that's not reality. If you move hundreds, of, like, for example, in Balasadere, their population's gone up by 20%. That's just due to asylum seekers. And that's a tiny place. So where are all these people going to work? I mean, it's not reality yeah, to say like, that they're going to get a job. I, you, you appreciate, I can't, you know, I can speak to every community in oh, the Oh, yes, yes, yes. I'm not, I'm not giving off to but, you, but I'm just, you know. I mean, you know, the, uh, and, and there is a challenge about um, employment in rural areas. What I will mm-hmm. say is, um, because of remote working, we're increasingly seeing more people living in rural areas uh, and working remotely. I mean, the big challenge there is about decent broadband access. But, you know, we're, we're talking about rights to remote workly, work remotely for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, I do accept sometimes if you have a, if you have a particular specialization, it mightn't be in your own community. You may have to travel uh, to be able to do it. But, I, I, you know, I'll make the point we are effectively at full employment in Ireland um, and there are lots of job vacancies that are out there. And I get it, main, you know, it is tougher in rural communities, yeah. um, but that may mean that you may need to say, okay, I might be able to get it in Ballastadair, but in Sligo Town, there are certainly um, vacancies. Right. So our population obviously increased since 1990. I think it's about 47%. And mm-hmm. compared to, we'll say, for something like the Britain is 15%. So there's, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, do you think our population growth is actually too much based on our housing and based on everything else? Like, like we'd say health, which is at, uh, you know, the, the, the hospital. If you want to get an appointment, it's not, you're not getting one very quick and schools are at capacity and stuff like that. So can we keep continually, like our population has increased. Well, I, in- I, I, I think most people remember that, you know, the population of Ireland uh, in the 1840s of the island of Ireland was over 8 million and we've never reached uh, that since. So, yeah, but we know, didn't have hospitals. Only- we didn't have hospitals then. We yeah, didn't have but, schools then. But, we didn't but, have, you know, the world wasn't set up like that. You can't kind of to make the point to you, we're, we're the only country in the world that actually has a lower population now um, than we had in the 1840s. Um, and, and everyone knows the reasons, the historical reasons behind that. I mean, it goes back to my, my earlier point around, you know, how quickly we have grown as a country. And mm-hmm. because we've grown quickly as a country, um, we do need to have services and indeed a bureaucracy um, to keep pace with that. Um, uh, and I would argue, I mean, if you look at what has been happening and part of the reason why, you know, my party, Fianna Fáil, went into government is we've always been a party that believes in public services and spending in public, you know, in, in, in public services. That's why, for instance, uh, you know, there's an additional four billion program every year for social and affordable housing. And that's starting to have an impact. If you look at what's happening in health, we're continuing to see investment in health. Now, if you look at not all services are improved, and I get your point about access to doctors, but there have been huge changes and improvements in, for instance, cancer strategies, access to women's health, and mental health services are improving. If you look at, for instance, services for older people, we're now on target for 50 dementia centers to be open right around the country. In education, as I said, you continue to see an expansion in the number of third level places. You've seen pupil teacher ratios um, being reduced, particularly at primary school level to their lowest level ever. Um, now, we still have shortages. Um, like the, the problem in the past with health used to be, 
we don't have the money to fill the posts. We now have the posts that are there. But if you look across the health service, um, there are so many vacancies. Um, and part of that is around we're increasing the number of third level places to fill those, um, you know, particularly in areas like nursing. Um, but also um, we're having to take workers in from overseas. Right. But you, you don't think anything is down to the, the to population that we actually I know you I know you're you're well, well of course it's I mean of course it's down to population. Like if the population grows um But ours is growing in ours are growing, it's it's grown very fast. It is, it it is. Means... And, it, and, and and we haven't been keeping pace with services and, I, and that's I suppose my point that I'm making over the last two to three years, there's been a huge investment in services uh to try to catch up with that. And I mean one of our other challenges um, that we have as a society in common with most of Europe is we're getting older. We're living longer and getting older. And there are going to be some long-term challenges there around elder care, around pensions and so on. We've got to start to plan for those as well. Okay, right. We'll move on to something <laughs> not as contentious with to do with, um, with um, AI. So, I mean, AI is obviously going to be a, a, a big thing in the future. It's already like... I mean, it's on the cusp of everything. But how, how do you think AI is going to affect Irish society? Because even, even with the aspect of jobs, there is AI will take certain jobs away, for example. So how, yeah, how, do, you, how it, do you think AI will affect... We'll go from just a, from a, from a workforce uh, angle. How do you think that will affect the workforce in Ireland? Well, well I, always make, I always make a point that... Um, if you're talking to somebody who's in their leaving cert now, mm -hmm. um, they're likely to be working in and around till the year 2070, over the next 50 years. So I will say to people then, right, cast your mind back to the early 1970s and think about the level of technological change that's mm -hmm. happened in the last uh, 50 years. Even the fact that we are having this conversation, uh, you know, most, you know, 50 years ago, very few people in Ireland would have even had telephones. Yeah. Uh, you know, majority of people would not have had TV sets even 50 years ago. So, um, you know, that's just the technological change. In fact, most of we can we can now do on our phone. So the developments in technology that we're going to see over the next 50 years are going to require all of us to upscale and rescale. And artificial intelligence and the use of, of all of the data uh, that's around us to make decisions is going to be transformative and it will be in every area. So you can take something like healthcare. Uh, we're going to have, um, you know, I often pose this as a question to somebody um, and you can answer it if you want yourself. <laughs> would you trust, um, you know, if you were going for a particular type of surgery, would you trust a 100% AI uh, enabled robot surgeon to carry out that surgery ahead of a human surgeon who, no matter how good he or she is, is still subject to human error? Mm, that's a good question. But that, that's going to be the... But I mean, I, I make that... I know that is the question. Yeah and, yeah. and and here's the difference. And I suppose... So that people can kind of think about it. What is artificial intelligence? Really all it is, is it's a gathering of lots of data and on the basis of all of that data, you know, making particular assumptions. So an expert surgeon or an expert in anything, he or she has built their knowledge by, you know, reading lots of materials, looking at lots of cases, and on the basis of all that they know, making their expert judgment. 
Um, what AI allows us to do is just to gather, you know, far more data and information than the human surgeon could ever gather mm-hmm. and make a decision um, based on that. Uh, and certainly I think, and it's already happening in areas like identifying uh, tumors or cancers or so on, AI enabled technology is far more accurate uh, and it will help um, to detect uh, such problems and to be able to take action on them very quickly. Um, it uh, will also be able to, you know, make predictions around life expectancy. Yeah. Um, how, how, how secure we are in doing this. And this is where the safeguards have to come in is, you know, what information do you, uh, do you feed to your insurance company? So, you know, if I, if I'm monitoring, you know, Paul's alcohol intake over a particular period and I kind of go, "Mm, well, because Paul has increased his alcohol period, that means that his likelihood of contracting the following illnesses increases. Therefore that has to have a knock on impact, you know, on what his health insurance might be. So how far do we allow, you know, that type of evidence uh, mm-hmm. to be used. Um, certainly uh, in areas like transport, when we will start to combine artificial intelligence with what's called sixth generation uh, technologies and the internet of things, that will allow for um, automated cars that are linked to each other. So rather than us constantly hearing about driver error car crashes, um, you know, cars will be connected. So if two cars are coming too close to each other, that will automatically stop, uh, you know, those, um, those two cars because they're going to be connected into each other. It will, of course, mean that a lot of people who are currently employed, taxi drivers, delivery drivers, those roles are going to be redundant. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I know a lot of people are going to say, well, look, there's going to be lots of jobs lost. But every technology in history has meant... Uh, you know, a big shift in in the jobs markets. So when the car was invented, that meant lots of uh, horse carriage drivers um, were made redundant, so to speak. Yeah. They either had to, you know, up upskill and reskill. I think that the change that will happen with AI is because the technology is changing so quickly, we're all going to have to upskill and reskill uh, to be able to adapt to those technologies. And for us as legislators, I think it's putting in the guardrails um, to make sure that the AI is deployed for good, um, that in the design of the algorithms that underpins the, the AI, that, they're, that there's not bias um, and that you know, there's always some way of, of a, a human check being applied should a problem arise. Hmm. That's a, that's a good point about bias because there was studies done about chat GPT, how it is, who there's bias in it with, with regards to political questions. People would ask them and it seemed more biased towards left wing kind of ideology than right wing ideology. So how, how can you kind of, yeah. you, so, as a government, been, you have to implement rules that it has to be. Yeah. Uh, so I think that, that, that is what's going to happen. I mean, chat GPT, um, is um, based like any of the deep language learning models. How it works is it's not some magic formula in a sense. It just, it's had lots of data fed into it. Um, And if a lot of the data that's fed into it is coming from a particular perspective, 
then if you ask it for something, it's likely to give something back from that from that perspective. I mean, there's there's been research, you know, about algorithms in the US that have been used around hiring practices. Um, that because a lot of the, the algorithms were designed by white males, that there tended to be bias against women or people of color. Um, so you, you've got to ensure that at the design stage, that in bringing that data together, that the, the necessary guardrails are put in place. Uh, and that's why the European Union, which is uh, currently progressing the Artificial Intelligence Act, uh, the AI Act will probably be the most important piece of legislation that the European Union will bring forward this century because it will set down those ground rules. It can't be totally prescriptive because the technology, if, if you try to legislate for each individual detail, the technology is changing too quickly. Legislators yeah, yeah. can't keep up with it. But you've got to set down, which is what this does, the ground rules uh, on which AI can be deployed um, and where you know, there are areas of sensitivity. So for instance, when are you allowed to use AI in hiring people for a job? Um, and what are the rules that, that, that need to be applied for any AI platforms rolled out in, in, in that way? Where should, uh, where, should AI, um, where should AI step in? So we already use, we already use algorithms quite regularly. So if, you know, if, if you're listening to Spotify based on your previous m music selection, you know, Spotify will make a recommendation to you. If you're watching Netflix or Amazon or, or Disney, you know, based on your previous viewing habits, those streaming platforms will make a recommendation for you. Um, so we use a lot of AI already. Um, the difference is it's going to be, you know, all consuming in, in every aspect of our lives. Um, and it's going to make... It will in certain ways make our lives easier. It will make certain decisions for us and allow us to focus on other things. Yeah. Um, but in other ways, it will mean that we're going to have to constantly upskill and reskill uh, to deal with not just AI, but other new technologies. Do you, do you think, because I think it's going to have an actual, like you said, it's probably going to have a positive effect, but I think it's going to really have a negative effect on people's mental health. Because there's certain things that AI can do with the example to we'll say music production, like I make music, but you can do loads of stuff with AI where people can just like, you know, use a, an EQ that will automatically EQ a, a piano if you want. And I think the problem with AI when it gets to the point that it's it's way more advanced than it is now, it takes out the part of learning that is the hard part, I would say learning a piano or something like that. And it just does it for you. Not going to learn a piano for you, but but it, but we'd say for the aspect of learning music production, it takes all that thing out of it. So you never really fail. You you can always succeed. And it, I think learning and failing is a is a good part of being a human. And when AI can do stuff so much better than us, I think that might have a negative effect on mental health in the aspect of certain things that we would do. If that makes sense. Well, AI hasn't yet become as creative as, as human beings, and I think it's a long way off, uh, you know, off that. Have you um, heard Sovitz? Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, is... so you can, you, but you, you, you certainly can. I mean, uh, the technology is good enough now that if, if certain AI technologies, if it listens to your voice for three seconds, 
it's going to be able to pick up the tone of timbre yeah. and effectively, you know, impersonate your voice. It's good enough as well to get it to paint a picture or compose a piece of music in a particular genre. Um, but you won't entirely take away human creati creativity. Mm -hmm. Now, part of it is going to be about precisely this. What are the guardrails we need to put in place? How do we how do we safeguard copyright? You know, people's own intellectual yeah. property rights. Um, you know, do we require in the use of AI in those circumstances a kind of a watermark so that people become aware of where AI is 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 going to be used? Uh, and I think those are still some of the. I mean, this is part where the AI Act comes in, but those are still some of the big ethical questions that we need um, to debate as a society. Um, I, I think we're starting to do it, but I don't think that we're, you know, the, I don't think there's a full appreciation or realization just how transformative AI is going to be in so many walks and ways of life. Mm -hmm. um, and making sure that we have those guardrails in place is, is, is essential. Well, what do you think of AI art? Because when I see, when I view it, there's something I like it, but there's I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Is it because I know it's AI art or not? But I look at it, and it's some of it just seems very soulless to me. I don't know. It it, it, it is. I, I, um, I mean, it, it's it's just a form of you know, it, it, it's a tool toward creativity. You know, so it's almost a bit like you know when mass production came in. You know, some people say, oh, I have a copy of a painting. You know, it's not the same as yeah, the real, okay, yeah. real painting. So what AI is doing is it's just taking something and using the data from other sources and reproducing things in a different way. I, I mean, where I would see AI kind of developing, and I think it applies in art and music and everything else, is um, and in healthcare and all those other areas, is almost as a co-pilot that we as humans maintain control over what we're doing, but we use it uh, to be able to help us. So if you're creating a piece of music, um, you're still the creator of it, but you use AI for inspiration. I mean, what I would say to people is uh, play around with, you know, people say, oh, we should ban this and ban that. Never works because there will always be somebody who will use the new technology. Mm -hmm. I think we should play around with it. I think like with, with ChatGPT, for instance, uh, I, I would never use it, you say, in, in politics to write a speech. Um, but to get a framework around, so, you know, if you wanted to write a speech on the future of artificial intelligence, right? and you got, you prompted ChatGPT to, to write something on that, um, what it could do is give you a very loose skeleton, because, you know, as anyone knows, when you're looking at a blank sheet of paper and you're looking for inspiration, if you just even had a few key concepts, that, that can help. So I think the way we're going to see AI used, in particularly in the creative industries, but in other areas, is kind of as, as, as that co-pilot. You're still in charge, but it's a tool uh, to, uh, to help you work. Um, I, 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 I mean, I get that there are, I mean, a lot of the other concerns are obviously around data protection and data privacy, and, and those issues are still going to be uh, huge. But what is I, I, what I say to people is start to read about it, play you know play about with it, inform yourself on it, um, ask ask questions. And for us as legislators, it's important for us to be informed about it. And I I actually think that you know the the European elections next year and the next general election, I actually think artificial intelligence will be a big issue. Right.
Yeah, I agree with you. I think if you use it as a tool, like it, it you know, it, it can actually do a lot. Like I did a music video and I did half of it with AI, and I just used, you know, I took the AI yeah. and you know, edited it and melded it what it what I could do, and it kind of it can give you ideas as opposed to using this wholly, if that makes sense. Because then yeah. you're not then it's not you're not being creative. You're just using AI, like. But if you use yeah. it in in conjunction with your own ideas, it can kind of spurt some ideas off. I think. Yeah, but it's no different to other creative tools, you know, like if you use a synthesizer, for instance, uh, you know, is that is that distorting the music, you know? Yeah. Uh, um, you know, so, so again, depending on the, depending on any form of technology that you use, um, I mean, my view is so long as you still have the creative elements involved there, um, you know, that, that is key, but our challenge is really around, you know, how do you protect intellectual property rights and creativity um, while at the same time encouraging innovation in, in, in new technologies? How do you think AI will affect things like elections? And I, I mean, in, in the aspect of, we'll say, deep fakes, because you could essentially put something out we say, to discredit someone as a deep fake and the way sometimes the media goes at the moment is even if the minute it's out it's kind of true even if it's not proven false and then people will actually if it comes out that it's not true a lot of people will just have already in their heads it's true because I think that will be something that it's will already happen yeah, yeah it's already happening I mean we haven't we haven't effectively regulated social media um, and you know, people only need to look at social media accounts to look at the how quickly misinformation and disinformation gets spread. Uh, and deepfakes are already out there. Now, some of them are not particularly good. Um, mm. But like anything else, you know, the quality of that is, is, is going to change. Uh, and you can imagine in the course of an election campaign, you know, a couple of days before polling, a very good deep fake of one of the political leaders goes out there saying something controversial, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that could have serious implications on the election. Um, and I've no doubt that if a good video gets out there, a lot of people um, will have shared it on social media and not questioning it. Uh, and, uh, you know, even then when it is proven to be untrue, people will just say, ah, well, was it really? Um, mm -hmm. And part of our problem is we, we don't have great levels of digital and media literacy. I mean, it's something I think we're going to have to really focus on within our education system, both formal education, but non-formal education as well, is to, to get people to start questioning, you know, what they see on social media, to, to ask, before I share this on social media, do I know it's really accurate? What's the source? You know, just because somebody has a video that's liked a thousand times, um, is it actually correct? Right. To, to pivot off from that, we, we, we're, I, we're, I want to talk to you about the hate speech bill. So, mm -hmm. so we'll say, for example, someone has an opinion on, on social media, that it might be deemed as hate speech, but the, with regards to this law that's coming out, or, you know, it's got kind of pushed back a little bit. But the problem with the law is there's no definition of what hate is. So it's kind of an interpretation of what someone deems hate. And I think, I think the problem with that is, for example, there was a thing in England where a girl, her friend had died in a car crash. And 
she put the lyrics to one of his songs online on Twitter and it had the N-word in it and the she got arrested for it. And she was yeah. trying to say, well, the context was that her it was her friend's favorite song, but because she used the word, it, context was now not important in it. And I think there's, because there's no definition of hate, that could obviously happen in Ireland. So is the government going to put an actual definition of what hate is in the bill? Well, well, that specific case wouldn't happen in Ireland because there is um, contextual regard, particularly in terms of, for instance, with arts and, and music uh, and so on. And this was actually one of the issues that, that I raised in the Shannon, okay. um, because some of it can be around questions of, of, you know, even ownership of language. So what is the context in which uh, you use a particular word uh, and language? So. It does speak to, so, so first of all, the, the, the whole area of incitement hatred is actually an existing offence. Um, and uh, I, I guess to, to, to try to, you know, talk about, this is around the, 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 the long debate between, um, you know, the right to free speech, which is a really important, and free expression, which is a really important right in a democracy, along with an individual's right uh, to privacy, um, to personal protection uh, and not to be attacked because uh, of their identity or perceived identity. So there is no, um, in the first instance, I'd say there is no absolute right to free speech. Um, people who think that you have a right to say anything is not, that is not the case. Um, firstly, you can't say something that is uh, that is false and injurious to somebody. I can't defame you, uh, you know, so I can't, uh, you know, I can't stand up at a public meeting, point a finger at somebody in the crowd and say they are a paedophile, um, you know, because that is, that is, uh, that, that would be defamatory and yeah. somebody's right to protection there. Um, there was a, a famous court case uh, in the US, which, you know, around the definition of the right to free speech, um, and the judge called Wendell Holmes said, you know, the right to free speech doesn't extend to, for instance, walking into a full theatre and shouting fire uh, yeah. and causing panic as a result of that, because that has that has consequences. Mm -hmm. So our, our challenge really is, is, you know, where where do you draw the line? So do I have a right, for instance, in the exercise of my free speech to stand up and to say, uh, all Jews are evil and deserve to be put to death, and anybody who supports me uh, should go out and do that. Um, you know, so do you draw the line at something like uh, at something mm -hmm. like that, where there is clearly incitement to people to try to go out uh, and to carry out actions? Or if I were to say, uh, you know, um, my free speech means that I don't believe that any Catholics should live in the city of Derry and you should go out and burn them out of their homes. Um, so should I have a right to be able to say that? Um, do I have a right to say something obnoxious and horrible about somebody? Yes. Mm. Uh, and the legislation will continue to allow people to do that. And particularly, uh, you know, for people on Twitter, it's very important uh, that they have a right to be obnoxious because obviously a lot of people like to be obnoxious on Twitter. <laughs> uh, and, and, and that's not going to be inhibited. But you are correct. And th this is one of the issues that, that a number of the Fianna Fáil senators raised is that while we support uh, 
you know, limits on the incitement to hatred because we think it is a right thing to do. Um, there has to be certainty on the part of a, you know, Garda uh, um, that if he or she, you know, has to face a, a you know, crime where they, they can take action. In the case of the, you know, the song that they'd mentioned, they'd say no because they'd look at that and they go, the intention in that song um, was not about causing, uh, you know, incitement to hatred. That was about a reflection of, of sort of love for, uh, for somebody who had passed away, and it was a, you know, it was it, it was a cultural expression. Um, I, I think the issue is is you know, where do you draw the line? And I I, I use the example um, of uh, quite a bit of Lee Chin, who the Wexford hurler, you know, being captain of the Wexford hurling team, outstanding sportsman, real role model in our community, who has regularly suffered racial abuse, um, including most recently at a charity match where from the sidelines he suffered racial abuse. Uh, and in, in that instance, it was the GAA took action and they decided to ban the supporter who was shouting the racial abuse for four years um, right. from the sideline of, of, of the game. So it, it is a tricky one as to, as to where you draw the line. Um, I think that uh, it, it needs to be held in the round. I think those who are arguing for an absolute right to freedom of expression, they, they need to, you know, consider where um, where that line needs to be drawn. Um, yet, at the same time, those who are kind of saying, well, look, we have to have, you know, particular limits. Um, you've got to ensure that people have the right uh, to be able to express what might be controversial or, or uncomfortable views. Yeah, because it was, it was a senator saying... She was saying that, you know, you have, if if someone feels insecure, I mean, I mean, you can't, to 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 try and make a law to if someone makes someone else feel insecure, I mean, that's just that's nonsense yeah. because you know, yeah. Like that's yeah, just, no, I, I I I don't think you can do that. I mean, there there are you know, there's other legislation around bullying and harassment uh, where you can address where somebody engages in a systematic campaign. Um, against somebody, um, it's it, it's I suppose it's it's the line where. So as a politician, I regularly get, particularly on social media, lots of abuse. Most of it I just ignore. Um, it, it's where it moves into you know more threatening language. Okay. Um, uh, then then you start to you know to 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 ask the question. Um, so, you know, if if somebody wants to call me a whole series of names and insults what I do and whatever, I can cope with that. Yeah. If, however, they put a series of social media posts out there that said, uh, you know, Malcolm Burns' views are so bad, he deserves to be killed, um, you know, go out there and, and target him and his family. Um, that then starts to become the question around... Okay, has this then crossed the yeah. line uh, into? And, and our challenge, and, and this is being absolutely blunt, the challenge is around the definitions. It's around where where you actually draw the line. It, but is there not a law? Obviously, there is a law in Ireland. Obviously, we have we have I wouldn't say hate speech laws, but we have the the the, the incitement to hate. Yeah, incitement. So it, would, it, would that is, not cover that already? It it, that, it does to an extent. Um, it's from nineteen eighty nine. Um, yeah. 
And part of its challenge is, I suppose, it, it you know, this was pre-internet era, so it doesn't envisage uh, some of the challenges uh, that are there. There are also some problems there around the definition. The fact that I think, and I could be wrong on this, that there have been only a handful of cases taken mm-hmm. under uh, uh, under that, and part of it is around some of the challenges on definitions. As I said, the the um, there is a meeting that's been arranged with some of the Fianna Fáil senators. While we're supportive of the principle of the legislation, I think you're correct. Uh, we've got to get the definitions right. Yeah. How how does that affect you when people like send you awful messages? Can you kind of just go ah oh, and just get on with your day, or does it actually affect you when people send you awful stuff? Most most of the time, most of the time it doesn't. Where where it impacts is where obviously friends and family see it and they get concerned. Um, right. And I think if you talk to most politicians, they will say that. Um, there have been a couple of more serious threats. Uh, so. Um, you know the Gardaí are now are now taking some of that you know more seriously as well. And that to say, um, um, uh, so you know, and, and you have to. And I know, you know, I've I've, mm-hmm. I've had I've seen colleagues who've, who've got it much more you know serious. Where mm-hmm. uh, I think nearly every politician has received a death threat at some stage. Um, but you tend to ignore a lot of them, but some of them then become more specific and they end up in bullying and harassment. Um, and, and we do need to address that, um, not least because it's becoming more difficult to get people to go into politics. Um, right. it's, it's particularly having you know, an, an impact on young women. Um, because yeah, they can, you, you can make lots of sacrifices to go into politics, but when you're subject to that level of, of abuse, you sometimes go, do you know something? I could have a much easier life without, uh, without facing this. Okay. Um, and, and, and that said, I, I mean, I, 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 I should stress that, that I've always taken an approach. 95% of people are decent. Um, you know, um, the, the overwhelming majority of people, they go about their lives, they, they try their best. They make mistakes. They want the best for their community. They're happy to work with you. Mm-hmm. You're always going to have 5% of people who are obnoxious. Um, and the chances are if they're obnoxious online, they're probably obnoxious <laughs> in real life. Yeah. Uh, I've always believed focus more on the 95% who actually want to contribute to society than the 5% who want to knock it. The weird thing is about what I find about social media, like I'm not on Twitter. Like I got off that a long time ago. But like, some of the stuff people say online to people, they would never say to them in real life. Like it kind of, it it has this way of facilitating this kind of awful things that people say and from every political aisle, no matter if they're left wing, right wing, whatever. It, it, no one would say those things in real life to people, which is kind of an odd thing that only the internet has done in in history of the way people have communicated with and, themselves. And that's, that's why we need to address it and we need to deal with it um, because it has real-world uh, consequences. Um, and it's why, for instance, uh, we had to enact uh, Coco's Law, for instance, which was, um, and, and I happen to know the mother of a young woman called Nicole Fox who took her own life um, because of the abuse that she was getting on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so people who think... Oh, yeah, I can insult people online because it's not the same. Well, it does have the same impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got to start to treat the way people behave online. And we've seen it, uh, you know, move wages from politicians. If you look at um, particularly people in the sports world, uh, you know, 
they've been subjected to some horrendous abuse, um, mm. often racial abuse, um, and it's it's just not acceptable. And um, as a society, we've got to uh, we've got to, to to stand up to it. And I mean, there's a responsibility in that we've been trying to do it with the Online Safety Media Regulation Act uh, to make sure that. Uh, we have something now in that space to be able to address um, online safety uh, and, and we, we've moved on to it. But I think the social media companies still have a lot for which to answer. Yeah. Um, something I want to ask you about with regards to the, I'm not going to ask you about RT, but there, there was there was a whole committee to do with well, obviously RT payouts and stuff like that. But why is there never anything to do with with regard to the sexual uh, abuse that some kids are are being subjected to in like Tusla and stuff like that? There seems to be no, there's hardly anything. I, I think like two papers reported, and I think that's such a big issue that that should be should there not be like some committee and some big, you know, meeting on that with regards to because everyone's focusing on well, RGE at the moment. Well, and for me, well, that's there the is. But 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 there yeah, is. Yeah, it's not highlighted. I mean, like I mean, it like RT seems but, like the main. But you thing. can't you can't blame politicians um, for what the media choose to highlight. So uh, no, I mean, but it is a big I, issue. I think the media should is. highlight it more. Would you not agree? The media should highlight it more I, I, than I, absolutely. I would. Right but I, you that, I mean, the Oireachtas the Oireachtas Children's Committee has been doing huge amount of work around addressing problems. Uh, that children in care have been facing, and have you know done extensive work in some of that area. I mean, I, I you know, I would even point to I sit on the Rockless Media Committee, so um, I, I dealt with the RT stuff for the last few weeks. But over the last three years, we've been dealing with questions around the future media, the future public sector broadcasting, uh, all of those issues um, over the last uh, over the last number of years, and it didn't get the level of coverage that suddenly you know, a scandal to which everyone can relate, um, did. And, and what I would say, I suppose, in defense of the media in a bizarre way, um, the media will tend to cover stories in which the public take to take, tend to take an interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, can, I can certainly say to you in terms of even just what people have been talking to me about, but the journalists will tell you, you know, the most clicked on stories in the last few weeks have all been in relation to RTE. Um, the highest ever viewership figures on Iraqis TV were around um, the RTE hearings. So wow. I, I agree with you. I think there are much bigger and more important issues. Um, but, you know, politicians are working to address those. If journalists choose not to cover them, that's their choice. Um, but also in many ways, journalists are reflecting, you know, that's where the public demand is. Yeah. Do you, uh, I, What kind of... <laughs> Not not shocked me, but I, I was surprised that people were surprised by that there would be corruption within RT. I mean, that didn't shock me at all. So I, I don't get well, why I, people I, were so obsessed. I'd be very careful about using the word corruption. I think what we had was we had very poor corporate governance. And I think, uh, you know... So you wouldn't say it's corruption? I, I wouldn't, because corrupt implies uh, that, you know people were wrongfully gaining, um, you know, uh, from what, what happened. Um, I mean, I'm not saying, uh, like, you can have a question around the deal that was done with Ryan Tuberty and so on, but I suppose, you know, his agent was ultimately negotiating the best deal for him. The deal was negotiated on his behalf 
um, by RTE. Uh, do I agree with it? No, it was wrong. Um, but there was nothing unlawful about it, um, you know. Um, and I think some of the bigger issues around, you know, some of these failures around uh, around corporate governance uh, and around financial controls, which clearly were all over the place. Yeah, um, I think more the optics of it didn't look good for him. No, they, they didn't. And it's caused huge damage to the brand of RTE. Um, I, I mean, I'm hopeful at the end of this because public sector broadcasting is vital in the democracy that RT will actually come out of this uh, in, in a much better position. I mean, for me, um, and I, I don't like because the word corruption gets bandied around too much, but I mean, for me, one of the things I've been calling for for a long time, and I think which is going to be beneficial, is the introduction of a register of interests, which requires a presenter or producer or senior personnel in RTE to declare if they have an interest. So for instance, if they're doing a segment of the program about motoring and they have a side deal with a car company, they should declare that. Um, right. In fact, in France, even social media influencers are required to declare if they're, if they're shooting a video, if they have been paid by a particular company where they're seen to be using uh, that particular product. Yeah. Did the government have any say with regards to I know I'm going, I'm still talking on RT, but with regards to music, because the amount of Irish musicians that actually get played on RT radio percentage wise is incredibly low. I mean, I know a lot of other countries have have much more of their own. We say France, for example, would have a, lot, a higher rate and Ireland has such a low rate. Is there is there any laws? I mean, that's probably hard. There, to there are, yeah, there are some there are some quotas and codes um, that are in place. Uh, and certainly, I mean, it is something that the new media commission um, will be looking at, and not just with RT, but indeed also with local broadcasters. And in fact, you'll often find local radio are among some of the strongest supporters uh, of, yeah. and not just Irish musicians, but I think more importantly, in many cases, emerging musicians. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Last thing I want to ask you, because I've taken a lot of your time up. <laughs> Why did you actually get into politics? Was there any moment specifically that you saw or you thought that you were actually like, oh, I just don't want to get into that? Uh, so I, I'm by conviction, not by conception. I don't come from a party political family. Um, but, you know, growing up, we would have always discussed issues around the table. So, you know, things that were going on in the news. There was, a, mm. you know, family that we were always encouraged uh, to hold our own views. And, you know, I'm the eldest of five and we'd all hold different opinions and different issues, but would debate it out. So I think that was, that was important. Um, I, I think part of the reason why I, I chose Fianna Fáil is I, I have a great belief in the best way that you can change or influence a society or give people to opportunities by investing in education. Every significant investment and change in education has been led through, through Fianna Fáil. And it's something which, which I'm, I'm still quite proud. Um, but then also as, you know, from when I was in school, right through college, um, you know, right through the 90s in particular, when you saw everything from the Berlin Wall falling to communism collapsing to Nelson Mandela being set free to the peace process here in Ireland and the move away um, from the troubles, you got to see the possibilities of politics. And uh, I, I'm still a great believer uh, that if you want to change something by getting involved, and it might take time, whether it's in your local community, uh, or at a national or indeed at a global level, um, politics is the way is the way to do it. Um, and I, I always say to people, look, if you are not prepared to become a candidate, help out somebody who you believe in who is. Uh, and it's not just obviously about 
backing individual politicians or political causes. There are lots of campaigns. I mean, I, I would argue that without the campaigns of so many young people here in Ireland and around the world, climate change would not be on the agenda to the extent uh, that it is and should be. Can you can you switch can you switch it off when you go home? Can you switch off all the kind of yeah. political stuff? Can you? Yeah. Yeah, most times. So I I, I run a bit, and uh, you know I'm, I'm a big fan of theatre and cinema. So yeah. Um, what cinema do you like? Up. What cinema do you uh, like? I'll, I'll I'll watch almost anything. Uh, so I can uh, I can go from your very highbrow drama to <laughs> you know just give me a fast paced thriller that that just requires me to to uh, to switch my mind off. Um, so yeah, so it, it it's it's but you need that. Um, it is true. Politics can become all consuming, particularly at national level. Mm. Um, but but you need to have other other interests as well. You know, Tarantino has a really good book out at the moment, and it's about all these seventies films. So I'm kind of I'm. It's done in chapters. So some of the movies I ha- I've I've seen some of them, but some of them I haven't seen. So I'm re I'm re watching the movie. And then I'm reading the chapter and getting his take on it, and it's quite it's quite interesting <laughs> hearing Tarantino's views on things because I think I think he's a he's a great director. Yeah, Along with, no, I love I, Nolan too. I love Christopher yeah. Nolan. Like I can't wait yeah. to see Oppenheimer. Like that's just gonna yeah. Be. No, no, I'm looking looking forward to it. Is is there any movies that hold a big place in your heart? Uh, well, Casablanca still remains oh, my favorite movie of all time class, as class. as a classic. Uh, as a kid, I was a huge fan of Star Wars films and. Uh, I'm uh, I'm still a big uh, I'm still a big lover of of those, um, but genuinely, I mean, I can uh, I, I'm I'm I love cinema. I also love uh, live theatre and and stuff as well. So it's it's um, there's nothing like performance to switch off, and that's why. And I know there's lots of challenges there, but you know, AI won't won't ever take over completely from the creativity of the artist. Do you, do you go to much concerts or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm trying to think. The last uh, Pet Shop Boys was the last concert oh, that wow. I was at. Um, cinema-wise, uh, well, I, I, I tend to the last few weeks have been mostly on Netflix stuff. I'd be a regular theatre goer. So, um, yeah, you just need to, to get something like that to switch off. Right. Hey, Malcolm. Thanks very much for doing this. I really, I really right. appreciate no, it. No, hopefully, there's something, something in all that. Book. Really enjoyed it, and um, thank you for for your time. I know you're busy, so I appreciate it. And, right. um, and have, best, have a, best of luck. Great. Best have of luck a, in the podcast. Thank you very much. Have right. a lovely day and week. You too. <laughs> bye yeah. bye. Bye. Thanks.